Well, take out again your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 29. And we will today be looking at verses 1 through 30. Genesis 29, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flock are gathered together. And the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages, what shall be your wages. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. 
Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his, him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, Father, now that you would grant to us the careful attention to the preaching of it. Be with this your servant. May my words be your truth. May we understand this passage. May we apply it rightly to our lives. And may we give all glory to our Savior Jesus in it. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, there is a, a sense, a sense in which the saying, what goes around, comes around, has a kernel of truth to it. The kinds of sins which we perpetuate do have a tendency to come back at us. The Proverbs contain many sayings like this. Galatians 6, which we just read for our New Testament reading, ended with this. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When people live life for themselves, running over others to reap their own benefits, they will in the end reap destruction. But those who are sowing to the Spirit, they will reap spiritual benefits. When you and I live by the principles of Scripture, we will find in them joy and peace and rest. But when we live by the ways of the world, seeking to avail ourselves of all that the world has to offer, fulfilling the desires of our own flesh, then ultimately what we'll find is emptiness. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean that we won't experience suffering if you're following Christ. You know, being a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to live, you're going to have this perfect and happy life in every respect. The Christian life is not a life free from suffering or trials. I know all of you can testify to that. And it is here that we often see one of the problems of suffering, isn't it? When our focus is on eternal things, heavenly things, even in the midst of suffering, we can still be content. Our suffering then will seem as a momentary affliction. We can persevere in it. But when we are worldly and seek only the pleasures of this world, that when suffering comes our way, it will seem greater and more severe. When Jacob arrived in Haran... He did not realize how much he would indeed suffer. This man who had lived life as a liar and as a cheat, but had departed from Bethel as a transformed man, as a follower of the Lord, would be refined through suffering. And by God's providence, the suffering he will experience will be in very much the same vein as what he had done others. God does have a sense of humor, doesn't he? 
God was pleased to bring into Jacob's life another wily man who does to him the very sort of thing that he had done to others. Now in the previous scene, which we looked at last week at Bethel, Jacob had been given a vision of the heavenly ladder, a portal between heaven and earth. This caused him to worship and to make a vow before the Lord. That as God keeps His covenant promises, Jacob himself also would follow the Lord. And so when Jacob had first come to the household of Laban, his plans were still to find himself a wife and to lay low for a while, at least until the anger of his brother Esau subsides. But the deceiver was to become the deceived, so that God's purposes would come to fruition. Jacob had deceived his father. He'd used his father's blindness to trick him. Now Jacob was to be tricked in a similar manner, using the darkness of evening, the covering of veils. Jacob learns that if he's going to live life as a deceptive man, then he needs to worry about also being deceived. God was sanctifying Jacob. God was working out his purposes. Even as Jacob ends up taking the so-called wrong wife. Even as he himself is the wrong son. And through this wrong wife and this wrong son is actually the right son and the right wife because God was bringing up the fulfillment of his covenant promises which ultimately is the rescue of his people. And so we jump, let's jump back into the narrative here. We, the scene shifts away from Bethel, the, the scene of the, the, uh, the heavenly stairway. And now he's at this well uh, in Haran. And it's here that Jacob will encounter some shepherds. And Rachel and her father Laban. Now again, Jacob had traveled to Iran to find himself a bride, just like Abraham's servant had uh, providentially uh, done so, and, and again, is at a well. And as this scene opens up, this is actually the opening of what will end up being a 20-year or so stay in Haran for Jacob as he goes to the land of the eastern peoples. Jacob finds himself in unfamiliar territory in a place which much danger lurked for him. But as he comes, he comes to this place, he comes to this well, he sees there a large rock over the mouth of a well, and around this well are all these flocks, in fact three flocks of sheep that are just sort of laying about. Now they may not mean a lot to us as we read this, but it's actually important to understand this scene. Sometimes in this region, wells were covered by a very large and flat stone. And often there may be a hole cut in the middle of that stone, and another stone placed over that. Now to move such a large stone, it may take two to three men to do it. The large stone. And keep in mind, keep in mind the enormous, the enormous size of this rock, because this is significant for what is going to come next. And so as Jacob comes, he's observing this scene, and he actually is puzzled. 
he's going to express his puzzlement in verse 7. He does not understand why the flocks are gathered around this well at that particular part of the day and were not being watered. And so Jacob, he comes near to the shepherds who are there. In verse 4, he, he says this. He asks them, where are they from? Where are you from? Where, uh, who are you? And they say, well, uh, we are from Haran. Now, evidently, Jacob has arrived, and he doesn't actually have any idea where he is. God has providentially brought him to the right place. We are from Haran. And so he asks them, well, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Indeed, they do know him. So this is the place. This is the place he has been looking for. And so Jacob inquires, is it well with him? Now in the Hebrew, the word he uses is the word shalom, which means peace. So the question he's asking is, is he at peace? This inquiry and the response prepares us for the break in peace, which will mark Jacob's time among the family of Nahor. Well, just as Jacob was receiving the news he was looking, that he was looking for, Rachel now comes into view. It is well. He is at peace. And look, behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So Rachel's sudden uh, arrival then calls to mind uh, the arrival of Rebekah, just as a servant was praying to God. You remember, you remember that scene when Abraham's servant had gone and he was praying to the Lord and all of a sudden here's the answer to his prayer at this well. And so her arrival, Rachel's arrival, is accented by the Hebrew, Look, behold, here comes Rachel, Laban's daughter. Rachel's um, bringing the sheep to the well, though, reminded Jacob again of the strangeness of the situation. Remember all the flocks that are sort of lazily gathered around this well, but nobody's watering them, and it's this odd time of day. Nobody seems to be drawing water for these sheep. It's very strange. And so Jacob, the knowledgeable shepherd, offers some advice, perhaps you know, a little arrogantly. He says, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. And Jacob is a changed man in many respects, but this did not keep him from being critical. He knew something about shepherding and taking care of flocks. The force, by the way, of the language is in the imperative. It's not, it's not very likely that he's giving somebody else's shepherd's orders about how to care for their sheep. Rather, what he's giving is some strong advice. Perhaps he's a bit incredulous. Kind of like, what are you guys doing with these sheep? I don't understand what you're doing here. Someone needs to go water these sheep and take them out to pasture. Why isn't anybody working? There are a lot of criticisms that can be leveled at Jacob. Laziness is not one of them. We'll see this. Jacob is a very hard-working man. This was true in Canaan. This was true in Haran. Now, there was actually a very good reason that the shepherds were not watering the flocks. Remember, remember that large stone over the well? It's too big for them to lift. It takes two or three men to get that stone off the well. So they were bringing all of their sheep together, and when all three of the shepherds were together, then they would work together to get the stone 
off. Once the stone is removed, the sheep are then watered. And so what they're doing is gathering them together. Now what they do is they, 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 out, they outline their custom, but they truncate it. What they don't do is admit, well, actually, we can't lift it ourselves. They don't tell them that. But while they're still talking, though, about this, Rachel now arrives there. With the text stresses, and you'll notice the text stresses are her father's sheep. She arrives with her father's sheep. Rachel herself is a shepherdess. And so as soon as Jacob sees Rachel, though, and sees her bring the sheep, what does he do? He goes over to the well, and he rolls the stone off, and he proceeds to water the sheep. Now, whether or not this feat of strength was to impress a pretty girl or not, the text doesn't actually say, although I think that's what's happening. What's also as clear is that Jacob must have been an exceedingly strong man to be able to lift that stone himself. And this shouldn't surprise us, as he was involved in animal husbandry back in Canaan, caring for his father Isaac's flocks. Now notice too that Laban, his mother's brother, is mentioned multiple times here. And what is stressed is that the daughter, this daughter is Laban's daughter, the sheep are Laban's sheep, the flocks are Laban's flocks. Three times this ownership or headship over things is mentioned. Now this is is significant. Because Jacob, who is the covenant heir of Abraham and Isaac, who is to be the father of the nation, is here a lesser. He's a stranger in a strange land. And the text stresses that Jacob has come as Laban's inferior But he will leave that place, having been greatly blessed by God, he will leave as Laban's superior, despite the shenanigans which Laban tries to pull against him. Now, Rachel may have been quite impressed with this young man's show of strength as he moves the stone, which it ordinarily took the other three shepherds working together to move. She she may have Hmm, wow, that's pretty impressive. And so uh, Rachel, like the stranger, um, had the, the care of flocks in common. Again, consider for a moment the contrast, though, between when Abraham's servant had come to find Rebekah and where Jacob here finds Rachel. When the servant identi- discovered the identity of Rebekah as a daughter of Nahor, what was the first thing he did? He praised the Lord. He worshipped the Lord. What does, what does Jacob do? Well, he lifts a rock. He flexes his muscles. The man of faith has, still has a long way to go, doesn't he? He has a long way to go on his spiritual journey. He sought to ingratiate himself to Rachel and to Laban through his physical strength, showing that he could serve the household well, and he would indeed end up serving that household, much to his own chagrin. Jacob here doesn't seem to appreciate that God had provided him exactly what he had set out to accomplish. He had 
He had found the family he was looking for, but he seemed to be unaware of God's providence in it. To be fair, though, isn't this true for you and I? Aren't we a lot like Jacob, where we don't really see God's hand in in the details of our life? Don't we forget what God has done for us sometimes? Well, Jacob sets out to water the flocks. He does this. He, in doing this also, not to be you know, totally uh, critical of Jacob, but he does exhibit a, a heart of service. Um, perhaps, perhaps he's attempting to impress a girl, but he is serving them. He's watering the flocks. And maybe this is because Jacob really does have a servant's heart. Uh, but once he's done with this, he's overwhelmed with the excitement of finding uh, his close kin. Verse 11 says, Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep. Now, this kiss uh, is nothing more than the greeting of a close relative. This is not a romantic kiss, as some might think it is. The combination, though, of the greeting kiss and the loud weeping suggests that this was for Jacob a very emotional event. He was overjoyed with having successfully completed his journey. He found himself, perhaps unexpectedly, in the right place. And that Jacob kissed her before identifying himself, though is somewhat suggestive of his audacious character. Jacob, through tears of joy, though, does begin to relate who he is in relation to her. He was her father's kinsman. He was Rebekah's son. And so Rachel ran to her father and told him all that had taken place. Now the narrative continues to move forward to Laban. He hears the news, and he runs to meet his nephew and to embrace him and to kiss him. Laban's enthusiasm here is like his earlier enthusiasm towards Abraham's servant many years prior. At the time, he was impressed with the riches which the servant brought. Now he's impressed by Jacob's feat of strength and the service which he could render him. As one commentator wrote this, quote, Tricky Laban knows, even before he has seen Jacob, that a workman is on his way who is worth his weight in gold. As Jacob shared all that had taken place, a familiar tale to Laban's ears, no doubt. Laban says to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. We're family. And the implication, of course, is this. We must stay together. You must stay with me, Jacob. Bible remembers well how his sister was let go to the servant of Abraham, perhaps a bit too hastily. And he was going to ensure that he would exact what he wanted out of this nephew of his. He was not going to let his daughters go that easily. God had providentially brought Jacob to this place just as the servant of Abraham had prior. And the kinship between Jacob and Laban throughout this section you'll see is being stressed. And yet it will actually be one of the complicating factors for Laban as he seeks to take advantage of Jacob. After Jacob stays with uh, with Laban for a month, Laban then addresses the issue of wages. Look at verse fifteen: "Because you are my kinsman, you should therefore serve me. Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be?" So Laban is offering to pay the young man for his labor. Note: 
But the issue of wages will be a reoccurring theme in this relationship between Jacob and Laban. This will come again, come up again. Laban will regularly cheat Jacob over the course of many years over wages. Now surely the answer to Laban's first question is no. Of course family members should not be expected to work for nothing. But what Laban should have done was seek to help the young man to establish himself and his own household. But instead, instead what Laban does is this. He degrades their familiar relationship into an economic transaction. Name your wages. Laban will view Jacob as nothing more than a hired laborer under contract. A complaint which Jacob will bitterly make later on in chapter 31. And so Laban asks uh, what Jacob's wages should be. Now we already know, and Laban already knows, that Jacob has come to Haran to find himself a wife. And we are also told that Laban has two daughters. The older is named Leah, the younger named Rachel. Now Leah, her name means cow. She was said to have weak eyes. Rachel, whose name means you, was said to have a beautiful form and appearance. Now, their names may be appropriate in a shepherding family, but notice that they're really treated as nothing more than commodities by their father. A complaint, by the way, that they will themselves make bitterly later on as well. They will, this will not go unnoticed by them. Now, Leah's weak eyes uh, may actually mean tender or soft eyes. That is to say that she possessed a beauty which was in her eyes, but she did not physically measure up to her sister, Rachel. Now some have suggested that verse 17 is a contrast between the sisters, suggesting that Leah was unattractive. I don't believe there's a warrant for that in the context. Because if there was a contrast, then it would have been both over the eyes or over their figure. But it's one eyes, the other figure. I think what's instead being described is each woman's positive attributes. Perhaps the things that Jacob saw as attractive in each one of them. But Jacob's choice is clear. He preferred the younger sister, Rachel. This is the woman that he loved. This is the woman he's attracted to. And so he says to Laban in response to his question on wages, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Jacob had great affection for Rachel. He found her to be physically attractive, which is not wrong. It's not wrong. Husbands and wives should be attracted to one another. He was willing to serve Laban for seven years so that he could marry the woman that he desired. Jacob, remember, at at this point in his life, is penniless. He has no means to take care of a wife. But he wasn't interested in money. Seven years represents in the Mosaic Law the maximum, by the way, that someone could indenture themselves for. After seven years, all debts were to be forgiven. In so many respects, this is a very generous offer, one in which Laban was more than happy to take advantage of, and so he responds, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now note how ambiguous Laban's answer is. Clearly, Jacob is asking for the younger daughter, Rachel. But Laban never specifically promises him Rachel. He simply says it is better to give her. 
And Jacob is not able to see through his uncle's shrewd scheme. And so we read that Jacob served for seven years to Rachel. These seem to him but a few days. This is the classic line of one who is so deeply in love. But this sets the reader up for the agony which Jacob is about to experience. And, and, you know, think about this. This is agony for him. He's worked for seven years for the woman he is just head over heels in love with. And they end up with somebody else. This is, this is, this is very grievous to him. Well, after the seven years are up, verse 21 Jacob asks for his betrothed. Now, in the Hebrew, it suggests that he demands for her. Um, though it may have seemed like just a couple of days in, uh, for, for Rachel, there may be another sense in which uh, he was very frustrated with the experience of working for Laban. He's done what he's asked for, and now he just wishes to have his wife and be done with the whole thing. But notice in verse 22, there's no verbal response from Laban. Laban doesn't respond to the request. Instead, he simply initiates a wedding feast. He gathers all the people for a week-long celebration of marriage. Now, it also should be pointed out that at a feast of this nature and this culture, there's an implication that there would also be a heavy amount of drinking. And so what Laban does is he takes advantage of a traditional wedding feast in order to make a switch by muddling Jacob's mind with wine and then taking advantage of the darkness of the evening and the tradition of brides wearing veils, Laban is able to pull off his deceit. Because, you know, if you think about it, you wonder, how in the world does Jacob not know? Well, because all of these aspects are put in play. This evening... It's evening when Laban brings out his daughter to Jacob. Now this is kind of another irony, isn't it? The cover of darkness. The cover of darkness is used just as Jacob had used blindness. Laban used the darkness to outwit Jacob just as Jacob had used his father's blindness to outwit him. And so Laban brings out his daughter Leah. Brings her to Jacob, they consummate their marriage. And once this is done, this is irreversible. And Jacob is totally unaware of what has taken place. Although Leah must have known, of course. And Rachel would have known. They too had to participate in this ruse, probably because they had no other choice in the matter. The scriptures also note that a female servant is given as a bridal gift. This, of course, will become important later on in the narrative. One commentator says this regarding this, that Laban secretly gave the unloved Leah to the man in love was, to be sure, a monstrous blow, a masterpiece of shameless treachery. Jacob was, in this way, being disciplined by God because of his own deception of his older brother and of his father. God may have used Jacob's deceit to accomplish his will, but there still were consequences to his actions. Well, when the light of morning comes, Jacob wakes to the truth. Verse 25, Behold, it was Leah. Jacob had married the wrong woman. 
who, in another bit of irony, in God's providence, turns out is actually the right woman. For the unloved daughter and wife, Leah, will be the one who gives birth to the line of the Savior of the world. Through her will come Judah and the line of David and Jesus Christ himself. The unloved one brought forth the one who loves to the uttermost. Isn't that that amazing? God used, in His providence, God used the deceitfulness of Laban to accomplish His will. Just as He had used the deceitfulness of Jacob. The wrong son marries the wrong wife. Really, it's the right son married the right wife. Well, needless to say, though Jacob, Jacob is confused, he's angry, so he says to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Jacob's words are the same that Abimelech used when he was deceived by Abraham and Isaac. And these are the same words that Esau used when he was deceived. What is this you have done? Why have you tricked me? Jacob argues that he had worked those seven years for the hand of Rachel, not for Leah. Now Laban's response is feeble at best. He feigns a kind of moral outrage. Verse 26 It is not so done in our country to give a younger before the firstborn. I mean, everybody knows this. He points to the custom of his nation as the reason for the switch. As if, I haven't really done anything wrong. This, by the way, is something that could have been mentioned on the front end of this whole thing. An honest man would have made this clear from the beginning, but Laban cannot be confused be confused with an honest man. He's a liar. He's a cheat. Something that Jacob was very familiar with. Laban's real motivation is seen, though, in verse 27. He wants more free labor. He says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me for another Seven years. There's his real motivation. So Jacob was to complete the bridal week. That is to say, the week of celebration and feasting. Normally, a joyous time for the bride and groom. A whole week of celebration. But in this case, it's a celebration of Laban's wit and Jacob's humiliation. Along with that of Leah and Rachel. Because really, all of them are humiliated, aren't they? Leah is humiliated because she's the unwanted wife. And Rachel's humiliated because she's the one who was supposed to marry Jacob, and she doesn't get to. This is humiliating. The only one, I think, that uh, probably enjoyed that feasting was Laban. But because of his treachery, Laban now has achieved two goals. The marriage of both of his daughters, as Jacob is now compelled to marry the one he loved, and another seven years of cheap-to-free labor from his hard-working and industrious nephew. And strangely enough, Laban's greed and Jacob's passionate love for Rachel leads to the patriarch ending up with two wives. 
the very thing which the Mosaic law forbids. Which really illustrates the truthfulness of the biblical account, doesn't it? You know, or it's just the sort of thing that you'd think you'd want to hide. And yet there's no hiding the failings of the patriarchs. And so Jacob, not having the woman that he had been pining for, was powerless to do anything else. And he does as he's instructed. He finishes his week of humiliation, and then he marries Rachel as well. And now he is stuck for another seven years, bound to another transaction with Laban. Jacob was forced to work twice as hard for the woman that he loved. Our text indicates in verse 30 that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. This little, that little phrase, this is, this is going to wreak havoc on this family. This is the soil which will yield a sibling rivalry. And Jacob's family, like that of his parents, would sadly be marked, sadly be marked by heartache and division and rivalry. And we'll see more of that. Uh, next time. God's providence had brought Jacob to the very place that he needed to be. It was also in God's providence which caused him to be deceived by Laban and to end up marrying what in his mind is the wrong sister. Jacob was being taught by the Lord that those whose lives are marked with lies and wickedness will eventually find themselves at the receiving end of that. Laban will also have his own dishonesty come out against him, too. We'll see that as well, how how God really uses Laban's Laban's, uh, uh, dishonesty against him. We've talked some about the wages of those who do wickedness. But those who walk in righteousness, what about them? Well, the Proverbs tell us that those who are steadfast in righteousness will live, Proverbs eleven nineteen, And the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise, Proverbs eleven thirty. Christ Jesus has set us free from sin and wickedness. And by His Spirit we have been enabled to walk in righteousness and Galatians 5, in fact, reminds us to, to, walk by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit and not to gratify the desires of the flesh. We saw last week that Jacob was a transformed man, but we also see that he continues to struggle in his faith. In fact, we've seen this with all of the patriarchs, haven't we? I mean, Abraham struggled in his faith, too. Jacob struggles to walk by the Spirit. And we can relate to this because you and I also struggled to walk by the Spirit. Jacob found himself in exile and in bondage. He ends up 14 years before he finally marries, well, to end up with marrying the woman he wanted. He's in bondage, much like the nation later will be in Egypt. But God was seeing him through. God was taking care of Jacob even through all of these trials. Jacob one day would be set free. In a similar manner, the church of Jesus Christ, though we struggle in our faith, though we at times fall into sin, we have been redeemed from this present world of sin and death. God intervenes on the behalf of Jacob, and we'll see more on that next week, 
Christ has intervened for us. God is sovereign over all that takes place in the world. God is, God's providence is in control of all of these things. He is caring for His people, even, even where it seems like, well, where is God in this? He's rescuing us. And even in this account, we see another bit of the plan rolling out. We see where Jacob ends up with Leah, who he didn't want, but God wanted. Because from Leah comes Christ. And so we, it's important that we remember, even where things are difficult, even where we're suffering, even where we're humiliated, that God is sovereignly in control of all things. And in fact, it's particularly important we remember this when we're suffering, isn't it? It's when things are not going our way that most of us well, maybe I speak only for myself. I judge you in light of my own character. It's when things aren't going our way that we most want to take matters into our own hands, isn't it? Isn't it when things aren't going our way that we want to lie and cheat because we want to accomplish what we think we deserve? Perhaps we want more comfort. Perhaps we want more wealth. But it's in the midst of difficulties that we most need to trust in the Lord. We need to trust in His providential and loving hand. Laban clearly doesn't trust in the Lord. That's pretty obvious. He's willing to sell his own daughters and entrap his nephew to get what he wants. Jacob, though, as he suffers, as he's humiliated, he needs to learn to trust the Lord. And so do you and I. We need to trust the Lord when we suffer. Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for this word We thank you for your providence over the things which happen in this world. Help us, O God, to see your goodness, even where we have difficulties. Even where things are upside down in our life, things are not going our way. Um, It's too much, Lord. Help us to trust in you. To not lean on our own understanding. To not try to take things into our own hands, but to acknowledge your ways. Make our path straight. May we rely on your wisdom, O God. May we turn away from evil. May we trust and rest in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.